0: Um, so I think uh, one of the ways that we, uh, well, we're, sh- we're shifting into sermon. So one of the ways that we see this um, this post Christian turn is it, it we can we've seen it in some ways all around us. We can quote statistics, but at one time there was uh, there was it's been out there that seventy to eighty percent of American was uh, identified as Christian. What they're discovering that is it's really more like seven percent, seven to eight percent. Actually, in the United States, identifies in any real consequential way in their life as Christian, um, but I like to think about it more in terms of uh, just the anecdotal evidence that we see around us. Uh, we see the upheaval uh, in in Ferguson and Baltimore and South Carolina and Texas. Uh, we see the that there's this uh, cultural uh, anger and frustration and racial tension that in some ways maybe we thought we were. I don't know, I, I, foolishly, but we had maybe uh, convinced ourselves that we had gotten past some of that. And what we see is that we're still struggling as a nation to know how to care about um, uh, uh, the, the divide be- between races and, and the poor and the wealthy and, and these communities that have been marginalized and, and, uh, and in some ways uh, brutalized by the power structures and police and then on the flip side of that we see uh, police officers just because they wear the the uniform treated as if they're somehow enemies or are uh, they're not human. We see this the Syrian crisis that has led to what is being said as the greatest refugee crisis since World War II, maybe 10 million displaced people. And then we see uh we see good um Christian people posting their, their um, anger at the idea that Syrian refugees would be allowed to come to the United States and it creates this confusion as to what it means to be a Christian and engage in culture. Or we see um, what I, to me was uh, uh, just shocking, Planned Parenthood videos and just the callous nature um, uh, about life an abortion that was on display there. We see the exposure of Ashley Madison client list and we uh, maybe you've heard of, I, I read a story recently of a pastor and seminary professor, beloved man who committed suicide because he knew he was going to be outed uh, when this uh, list was released. We see the whole, I, I don't know, circus around Kim Davis and uh, her defiance of of court orders and laws. John Hawthorne wrote an article um, that's gone around line. You may have seen it come across Facebook. He's a sociologist. And this is what he said. He says, as a sociologist, I've been as interested in the dramatic shifts in religious life in American culture as the next social observer. The data is compelling. We've seen a dramatic increase in the percentage of Americans claiming no religious affiliation. The, the nuns, if you've heard that phrase. Or the duns, right? The collapse of cultural Christianity, which is not a bad thing. It's not. Even though I think a lot of the angst that we see, I'll say it this way, a lot of the angst that I see come across my Facebook feed is, is, uh, is because of the, uh, the breakdown of cultural Christianity. Major demographic shifts in mainline churches and new pressures on traditional evangelical churches. Attitudes towards same-sex marriage have shown massive change in a remarkable period of time, I mean, just stop and think about how how quickly the acceptance of uh, the sale of recreational marijuana has happened in our culture. And I'm not even making an evaluation of that reality; just it's happened very quickly. Religious freedom claims are being made by those from non-Christian religions or no religion at all. It's a little overwhelming. It's no surprising that many in the Christian world. Worry about persecution in spite of a near absence of it in an American context. And I, um, I throw this out there. It's free. Um, Kim Davis doesn't count as persecution. Certainly the landscape is shifting, and we're trying to figure out where we fit. And that's true. So here's the question. What should we do? What are we to do? As Christians, what does it look like for us to uh, see this shift and engage it, to not even know where all the shifts are going to happen and and where they're going to end? What are we to do? Shall we retreat? Shall we protest? Let's march. Let's get out the signs and... and, um, Make our way known. Shall we get reinvigorated in the political process and apply as much um, uh, vigor and energy as we can to get the right people elected so that we get the right Supreme Court justices, so that we get the right legislators and the right president because that's going to fix it. Is that what we do? What shall we do? That's the question for us today. And as much as I, I don't know, I, don't, I can see the post-Christian things at play here even in Waco, if you don't buy that, it's coming, it's here. So this is something that we all need to deal with. So that's our question for today, what shall we do? Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. We're in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse one. I'm not gonna read the whole whole section that I have printed here. "'Let brotherly love continue. "'Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers.' For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are in the body, also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from money, from the love of money I mean. And be content with what you have. For he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now skipping down to verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach. He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you do not leave us simply with our questions, but you leave, you leave us, you have left us a way to live and be, a way to be a light and salt in this world. So I pray that even now you would transform us as a people uh, who, um, I don't know, love you and love our neighbor. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So it's an age-old question, right? What are we to do with the, Christian, with the culture we see around us? The, 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 when Christians, uh, be, as ever since they began to believe in Jesus, have, have tried to figure out what it looks like to live in a world that doesn't share their faith and that is often hostile to it, um, certainly is, is uh, often ambivalent. You've uh, heard the answer to the age-old, the age that question, uh, that Christians are to be in the world but not of it, right? Everybody heard that or most people heard that? Do you know what that means? No. We throw, I mean, it's funny how Christians throw these phrases around that we don't really know what they mean. Um, so we're to be in the world but not of it. What does that mean? What does it mean? What is it, it for us as Christians to uh, be uh, participants in the life of the world? To be here and to be engaged and to be saved and and left to um, live and and carry out the the kingdom calling in a world that's broken and broken and fragile that's um, sometimes, as I've said, against us. So I think there's three options that are out there. Um, these uh, what well, one, I would just we see uh, three options even in the, the interaction with Jesus in the New Testament, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Zealots were all answering that question in, in a different way. What it looked like for them to engage or be a part, be in the world, believing what they believed. I think the Christian church ha, uh, takes one of these three different options often. One is fortification. It's isolating ourselves, it's building walls, it's, it's protecting ourselves against, um, against the world, against contact or against encroachment, against uh, the ideas of the world coming into the church or into our families or into our, our homes or whatever it is, it's fortification. Uh, this might be called the Christian enclave or, or the Christian ghetto. Um, another option is domination. Domination. I think this is what we see when we see uh, Christians seeing as their main uh, way through uh, as, as political, is as getting the right party or the right person in place. The moral majority and that whole movement was one of domination. This is the language of culture wars. And um, I really um, want to invite you to stop using that language and stop buying into the idea that we're in some kind of culture war. I really do. I'll give you one example of of a result of that. We have um, Jonathan has a friend whose mom is divorced and has, has remarried another woman. And they were afraid to let him come to our house, and he was afraid to come to our house because he knew I was a Christian minister. That's what the culture war gets you. That's what happened. It's not really a good option. The other is accommodation. It's the, um, when we see this, it's, it's really taking on the world with no keep maintaining no Christian distinctives, maintaining no uh, understanding of the biblical truths of, of, of not only the truths of who Jesus is, but, but the moral implications of it. Because there are moral implications of saying I'm a follower of Jesus. Saying you're a follower of Jesus affects your sexual ethic. There's no way around it. There's just not. And so we cannot give that up, and we see different versions. There's conservative or evangelical versions of it. There's liberal versions of it. And here's what I want to just offer for us as I lay those out there. I don't think that we're likely to uh, pursue domination as much here or accommodation as much here, but I do think that there is a common, common tendency among Christians to fortify ourselves against Hawthorne talks about this in terms of what's been offered as the Benedict option. Around 500, the year 500, um, a generation after uh, the last emperor had been deposed from Rome, uh, Benedict, that's all we know of his name, uh, was a, he was Umbrian, was sent to Rome to finish his education by his wealthy parents. And he was disgusted by uh, the city's decadence. He he looked around, saw the immorality in Rome, and so he he fled into uh, into the wilderness, if you will, and um to to pray as a hermit, to live as a hermit. And what he did is he created a rule for life in these, these communities, and he, he spread this idea throughout uh, the West. There was, I think, as many as 12 by the time he passed away in 547. Um, and what they did in these monastery walls is they uh, created a community that uh, is, is described as, one of an, as an island of sa- sanity and serenity, a place of safety and peace behind these walls. But that's not all they did. Uh, people who were gathered around these communities, the, the, the outsiders, if you will, were invited to come alongside or uh, to be a part of what was going on in terms of the Benedictines uh, teaching them to farm and to, uh, to uh, teaching them the faith and, and other uh, practical skills. So they engaged the world from within these walls. And so here's what I, I, I want us to ask. Is that the option? I mean, I've obviously set it up to say no because we've got sixteen minutes left. If we're lucky, is that is that the option? Because when you hear that, it's not all bad, right? It's it, there's 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 what was going on there wasn't all all bad, and there was a lot of good things that came out of these communities. But is that the answer? Is that what we're to do? And here's what I want us to see about our text to answer that question. Is that we have to understand first that charity and chastity go hand in hand. I mean, if you look at what he, what he says here, uh, the author says here, is that let brotherly love continue. Do not let neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. So charity uh, remembering to give of yourself to others um, goes hand in hand with the, the the statement, "Let marriage be held in honor." Remember the sexual ethic of of God and His His created order and His design. and And the the writer won't allow us to say that the way through this uh, this world is to pull away and to protect chastity, but that we must also move toward others because you can't love your brothers you can't love those who are in prison and you can't show hospitality unless you're moving outward it's not possible we're called to be people who both protect the truth of the scriptures and live a life of love for our neighbor right we see this uh, reality working out in the three loves that are mentioned here. Um, there's brotherly love. That's the word that you may have heard. That's Philadelphia, right? There's the word in verse 5, which is, no, is not be lovers of money, which is philagiria. Um, uh, like, like my, my Greek is so bad I almost said it was Hebrew. And then there's this other word that I really want us to focus on, which is phylloxenia. And that's the love for a foreigner or a stranger. It's a love for the other. Have you ever heard the, the term xenophobia? Xenophobia is, is a fear of the other. It's a, it's a desire to keep out somebody who is different than I am. Somebody who doesn't share my values or doesn't share my skin color or doesn't share my culture. I would argue that we see xenophobia in some of the the political discourse about borders and about Syrian refugees. We have a fear of those who are not like us. And what the the author of Hebrews is saying, what he's finishing his sermon with, what he's applying the, the beauties of who Christ is and the uniqueness of his once and for all sacrifice for us, what he's saying is this is the result That you will be the kind of people, we will be the kind of people that love those people, the other, the outsider. We are called to be those kind of people who welcome in rather than wall off and fortify. There's a, a famous quote out there that the church is the only society that exists for those who are not its members. That is what this is saying, is that we are to be a people whose very identity is wrapped up in the other. And so here's how we we need to think about this in the the brief time that we have left. I think there's a lot here to understand about hospitality. I would argue that hospitality is, is one of the most thoroughgoing ideas throughout the scriptures. And so what I want us to understand first about hospitality from this text is that hospitality has to be it has to be lived out of your, your eschatology, which I know is like a really stupid thing to say. Like what does that even mean, right? I'm not trying to throw around a bunch of big words, but when we think about eschatology, the way I grew up thinking about eschatology, it was, it was this time at the end of time when things got really bad and, and it was just before Jesus was gonna come back and, and when we talked about eschatology, we're always only ever talking about some future event that was coming. And the reality is that, that the biblical understanding of eschatology is an understanding that the future event, as Jeff has already said this morning and says regularly, is breaking into the present but here's what I want to push a little further on that. It is present. It is present. So that when we understand what we're doing in Waco, Texas, in terms of our lives and our vocations, in terms of our neighbors, in terms of our, voca- um, our, our art and, and all of our endeavors, is that, that what the world will be is being worked out in very small moments now. It's not only something in the future. So let me see if I can get this from the text for you. Look there at verse 14. Um, Here's what he says. He says, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That idea of the city that's to come is also discussed in Hebrews chapter 11 when the writer is talking about the faith of Abram when he leaves Ur and goes, and goes to the place that God says, I will show you. And what the the writer of Hebrews says is that Abram was not, he was not seeking simply his home in a geographic spot that existed in the world. But by seeking his home there, by following God there, he was also at the same time seeking a city whose builder and founder was God, the new heavens and the new earth. And somehow what hospitality does is it brings together the future into our present dealings with the outsider. It actually brings the life of the kingdom to bear now. It's not simply a foretaste of the future. It is an in-breaking of it. It is a coming of it. And what we see, where we see this, I think, most poignantly is in the life of Jesus. I'm reading a book called um, Hospitality is Holiness. It's the title of the sermon. Um, and in it, Bretherton uh, quotes Jeremiah. And here's what Jeremiah says He says, An expression of the mission and message of Jesus that we see in Mark through these eschatological meals, so to say, through these meals that Jesus constantly is having throughout his life in this world, are anticipatory feasts of the end times. And here's what's so unique about Jesus' ministry in this world. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation, listen to this, achieved in table fellowship, not just pictured, but achieved, is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. The fact that Jesus sat down and ate with sinners was the most visible expression of the redeeming love of God. I mean, you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, come down. And what happens? He goes and eats a meal with him, but what Jesus says is, I must eat with you. This is something that we must do. We must have fellowship together. And do you remember what the religious said about Jesus? Is how dare he, how dare he eat with that man? The traitor, the sinner. When we show hospitality to the other, to the outsider, to the one who is not us, the one who we're afraid of, we actually demonstrate in a meaningful way the presence of the kingdom of God among us. It's an inbreaking of the peace for which we were made and the peace to which we are heading. And it's present. As we live this out, Jesus' hospitality is also so unique because it marks the upside down reality of, of the kingdom of God because hospitality has been valued throughout the ages, especially in the ancient Near East and the Greco Roman world where travel was so, so dangerous that, that hospita- you lived on the hospitality of others. We don't, we don't quite understand this as, uh, as much in the United States, uh, but, but we do. If you've ever moved to a new, a new place, Certainly if you've ever gone on a mission trip to another, another country, you've seen how important hospitality is, is to, to those cultures. But often in the U.S., our, our hospitality comes with a, a, a laws of reciprocity, right? This is what we saw in the Greco-Roman world. The people that were invited in were people who had some sort of social capital that provided something for the host, that um, propped them up in some way, that gave them some financial benefit or some uh, uh, benefit in terms of their status in the community. And what Jesus does is Jesus eats with people who give him no status value whatsoever. They, They actually get him killed. These are people that he becomes hated for associating with and thought uh, to be an an unreligious man, a, a lawbreaker because of his relationship to these people. Jesus teaches us that hospitality, our welcoming and inviting others in, is the very presence of the kingdom of God among us. Secondly, hospitality is... If it's eschatology, I want you to also understand that hospitality is holiness. It is law-keeping. Leviticus 19, right? When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him. Listen to this. You shall love him as yourself. That's the law of God. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. See what what God does there? This is the kind of people you were. And this is the kind of God I am. Because you were strangers, I brought you out and gave you fellowship and called you friends. And so now I tell you that you shall do the same thing with others. In Deuteronomy 24, When you reap a harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The law of God. And so what we see in the life of Jesus is that he takes the law of God up a notch like he does in other places. The the Beatitudes is one of them or the Sermon on the Mount. But what Jesus does is he, in a sense, takes the law of God and he, he pushes it in further because what the, the religious who understood the law of God, uh, when they thought about the sojourner and, and hospitality, what they also understood is that certain people couldn't come into your home because if they did, then it made you ritually impure and you couldn't go worship at temple and now you were a sinner too. Man, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him, Right? You know that happens at a meal? The woman who wets Jesus' feet with her tears. Jesus turns it on his head in such a way that rather than sin flowing to the host, the, the forgiveness and life and healing flows from the host to the sinner. And he invites us to be a people like that. Bretherton says this, the table fellowship with sinners and the reconfiguring of Israel's purity boundaries, which Jesus' hospitality represents, signifies the heart of Jesus' mission. This is the church. This is what it means to be the people of God. We are the kind of people who invite others in. So here's what I want us to consider Rather than the Benedict option, uh, there's what's uh, also in this article thrown out as the Patrick option. St. Patrick went to Ireland, to the barbarians, to the pagans, to the Oregonians. Right? And here's what Patrick did. Here's what he says. The Roman church knew how to extend Christianity alongside colonization. So that's domination, right? At the point of a sword, at the point of power. People were invited to kindly believe in Jesus. In religious matters, just as in political matters, all eyes turned to Rome. Not so with Patrick and his colleagues. And here's what he says. He was engaging a non-Christian culture and participating enough in the community so that indigenous practices were translated into Christian ones. You know the Celtic cross, the cross with the circle? We don't know exactly where that comes from, but there's there's at least a good reason to believe that the way that was formed was that the pagan symbol for sun and sun worship, when Christians came and saw that, they didn't say, "You pagans, get rid of the sun." They said, "The cross gives the sun its beauty and its meaning and its value," and that's where that cross has come from. He engaged the world so that he understood and translated, retranslated those practices. Brotherton says of Jesus that the host doesn't simply give a gift, nor does he identify or show solidarity with the poor and outcast in some nominal or distant manner. Rather, listen to this, the host parties with them. Do you think about Jesus having a party with sinners like you? Much less like them, right, those people, but you. I mean, his first miracle was a party. The wedding of Cana. What we believe is coming, or I don't know, the story of the the prodigal sons. The father goes out and to show compassion says, come in to the party. Come in and have fun and delight and joy. Come in and have fellowship and communion with me. Romans. Y'all are in Romans, right? Here's what Romans says toward the end where we're wrapping up the gospel with a nice little bow. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Hawthorne goes on to say about Patrick, he didn't just see himself as a missionary to the Irish. He thought of himself as one of them. He really didn't have us-them categories. He identified with those he was trying to reach. They weren't actually treated as barbarians, but engaged as potential friends created in the image of the almighty God. That's what hospitality looks like. Here's what I want us to ask. What does this look like for you? What does this look like in the church? What does this look like in our homes? What does this look like in our vocations? What does it look like? I mean, I think the short answer is it it looks like us creating space for the other. That what it looks like to be a Christian is to constantly be looking for ways to create space for the, for the other. But it lo- also looks like more than that. It looks like creating space and seeking justice and seeking to have fellowship with the marginalized and the outcast and the broken and the needy. The people who ha- uh, provide no social capital for us whatsoever. Are you familiar with the story of Jean Valjean? Right? We all love that story, right? So here's a, here's a man who's a, a thief, a beggar, or he's, a, he's poor, which leads to him thieving. I um, mean, he's on the run, he's looking for a place, and he's invited in by a bishop who, who welcomes him into his home. And then he steals his stuff, right? And I think about hospitality, and I think, man, hospitality is, a, is great right up until you steal my stuff. No, seriously, I know it's funny, I get it. But think about it. So I think about hospitality, I'm like, hospitality is great as long as I have money at the end of my budget that allows me to give something away. Why do we love the story of Jean Valjean so much? And it gives us warm fuzzies, but do you really, are you willing to invite somebody in and to have your stuff stolen? I mean that for real. Are you willing to do that? Because I'm not. I'm just not. I like my things. I like my comfort. And what this is pushing in is that that is the kind of Jesus we have or that's the kind of people we're called to be. That's the kind of grace that we are to show to others to risk losing. I asked in Sunday school this question, are we willing to have Section 8 housing in our neighborhoods if our property values go down, if that helps the poor people get out of these poor enclaves and ghettos. You may hate that idea. I get it. I like my property value too. But the cost of hospitality, the way Jesus uh, um, puts it on, on display for us is that it does cost us something and it should. So how do we get there? How do we let go of our stuff enough to risk this kind of risk? Because I realize it's asking you to risk something. I really do. I think it comes from where I ended the passage. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let us go to him outside the camp to the gate, right? Uh, this place outside the camp is, out, um, verse 12, he says, the gate. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So this, this metaphor of going to the gate and outside the camp, that's where outsiders are. If you, in the, in the Hebrew mind, if you were outside the camp, you were lost. You were the other. You were the person who had no hope in the world. And what what, um, the writer of Hebrews is connecting our our call to hospitality to is this idea that Jesus went to the gate. And what would happen is you would come to a town as an outsider, as a, a pilgrim wandering through, coming through, looking for safety. But you would wait at the gate for somebody to come out to meet you and to invite you in and to take you into their home and to shelter you and protect you at at cost and risk to them so that you could find safety in a city that was not your home. And what the writer says is that's what Jesus did, except he died there. He became the ultimate outcast. He became the ultimate other. He became the ultimate sinner so that he could invite you into the walls of safety and life the kingdom of god so if it helps you to hear hear it this way the law of god says you must do this there is no getting out of it but i would rather you hear it this way the grace of jesus teaches us that this is what his love is like toward us. And it invites us to love other people that way. It invites us to be the kind of people who welcome in, at risk to ourselves, the other. Do you believe that Jesus has done that for you? Leviticus 19 gets inverted so that the sojourner rather than the person in the land becomes the witness of God's welcome the outsider the one who has no place to lay his head becomes the witness to it of god's welcome to sinners hawthorne goes on to say this this is not the time for christians to fret about decline of influence this is for us to a time for us to engage as we did 1500 years ago and i will add because we have been overwhelmed by the welcome that we received at the gate 2000 years ago let's pray Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that Jesus invited us in, uh, that he not only only welcomed us, but he threw a party um, and has promised a great one in the future. Lord, I pray that we would be a kind of people who believe that your grace is so profound to us that we take the risk of having our stuff stolen. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to be a people who loves and invites others in. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.